0: Welcome to Heavy Hops. My name is Alexi. Joining me is Sam. On this show, we're going to use beer and metal as a lens into culture and history, and we're going to drink some beers today as well. We're going to drink uh, Backiatomy, a collaboration between Collective Arts and Pipeworks and Scorch Tundra. We are also going to drink a fantastic. A farmhouse style beer called Sin Frontera, a collaboration between Jester King, Toadam, and Crooked Stave from Colorado, and we're gonna and Sam and I are gonna get to know each other a little bit. It should be a blast. So without further ado, let's dive and get heavy. That's great. Let's do it. So today uh, we don't have a guest. We are guests on our own show today, and we're gonna get to know each other, Sam and I. So uh, I think uh, the first thing I want to do is just ask you some questions and let uh, let our people listening uh, get to know you a little bit. Sounds good. I, I like so it. <laughs> why do you like beer? Why do I like beer? That is a lot.
1: So um, pretty much you. You are the reason I got into beer. Um, I never really... Um, I cared too much about it because growing up, we didn't really have a craft beer scene in the small um, town that I'm from. And so, you know, moving to Chicago, uh, you're kind of introduced to a lot of things, especially when you work in the beverage industry and the food industry like we both do. And I was quickly introduced to a beer called Apex Predator by Off Color. Um, and it really threw me off because growing up, we only had Budweiser, Miller Lite, you know, the yellow kind of straw colored beer that doesn't really taste like anything. And so I never really had an appreciation for it because that was what we had. And experiencing this off color beer, it had these. Fruity notes, citrus, you had a little cardamom in there and all these kind of spice notes wrapped into this liquid gold. And I had never experienced that before. And I was like, I get it. This is beer. This is what everyone raves about. This is something I want to look more into, but I wasn't really working around a lot of craft beer at
0: the time. So I never really dove into it till we started working together at Kuma's. So what was your kind of uh, introduction to beverage in that case? If you were, if you already had a beverage background before that, where did it start as far as hospitality? Yeah, so hospitality
1: started uh, right when I was able to get a job. I started working at a little fast food type restaurant, um, quick counter service stuff, nothing crazy uh, on the level of what I moved on to when I came to Chicago. I really wanted to bartend and I got an opportunity at Frontier uh, to bar back and I really learned quickly that bartending wasn't just pouring liquor and uh, a bunch of mixers into a glass and calling it a cocktail. It's a very precise uh, science almost that I grew to appreciate in cocktailing, but also in liquors as well. And that's where my focus was as well as wine. I really enjoyed high quality wine and serving it at frontier and so between those two fields i really didn't get wrapped up in beer because we had so much other uh i guess avenues to explore and dive down and focus on Um, but then eventually from frontier i moved on to kuma's um, and i started serving there and kuma's focus is heavy metal beer and burgers And these are all things that I liked a lot. And specifically beer, I wanted to get into more. And it was going there that I found my love and appreciation for it. Definitely.
0: Were you able to find the same things in beer as in wine that you enjoyed? Eventually, yes. Um, And what were those things? Yeah.
1: So beer as a... I guess as a culture, we're not really trained to look at it with the same lens as we do with wine. Wine is perceived as this high-class, fine-dining thing, and there's a lot to look for in the beverage. And we're just kind of trained that way through society. It's been that way for at least 60, 70 years, I would say. And beer is just now on this cusp of um, becoming more prevalent in our drinking society and people are looking more into it as far as you know the color and what the color represents in the beer the notes from the hops that they translate into the actual beverage that you're drinking you know you get all the aromatics from that when it comes to the malt depending on what kind of malt bases you use you get different sweetness levels and such so it's kind of similar to wine whereas you know the different grapes you use to have a different outcome with not only the color but what you're tasting as well in the wine climate is also very very influential in how a wine comes out and beer to an extent depending what kind of beer you're having um and drinking also has a similar kind of um, outcome with where it comes from definitely and that is the kind of beer that I appreciate most. It has a sense of place and time. And that's the same thing with wine. You know where this beverage is coming from because it's very regionally specific to that area. And you got to appreciate where things come from and kind of look at it with a cultural lens and that's what wine has been for a long time. And beer is finally
0: being recognized in the same light. And I really appreciate that a lot. As far as uh, your experience with metal too, you came into Kuma's not just because you were uh, interested in food, but you had a uh, strong interest in, um, in music as well. How did that all get started for you? And what within that, what drew you towards uh, heavy music in particular?
1: Yeah, uh, heavy music has been around in my life for a while. It um, it was really always there. You know, my mom kind of would play the '90s hits on the radio in the minivan growing up. But then my dad was always really into uh, AC/DC, Led Zeppelin, classic rock stuff. And then um, let's see, my mom also loved Def Leppard, all the '80s hair metal stuff. So there was kind of a metal influence in there. It all be a very <laughs> Uh, mainstream for the time Um, and it's really funny looking back on it but that being said those two kind of influences came together in the early 2000s and you had this whole wave of heavy metal uh, sweeping across the states tours like OddsFest were really um, pushing it forward and exposing these new bands that were very extreme to larger masses of people and I kind of fit right into that lump And I very vividly remember seeing Slipknot in that kind of time frame and just seeing these dudes, nine of them, up on stage causing complete chaos, dressed up in masks and jumpsuits. No one knew who they were either. They were this kind of anonymous entity. And there was something that me being really young at the time was really, really drawn to that on a visual level, but also a musical level. It was just complete and total chaos. And from there, it just kind of fell down a rabbit hole of American heavy metal music. Uh, Lamb of God just dominated our household growing up, which is really funny because you don't really hear a lot of dads taking their kids to see Lamb of God and your younger brothers, who are even younger than you, just totally getting sucked into this band that is very, very aggressive. And there were just so many car rides. We would be on a road trip in Lamb of God. Ashes of the Wake would be blaring at full blast. It's so funny. Um, And then, you know, you get older and you branch out and you find more and more styles of metal. And that's kind of where I found black metal in the European metal scene. And I fell in love with black metal because it, blended this super aggressive kind of music, but also had that visual, that striking visual side to it that I fell in love with with Slipknot. Um, And it just kind of everything I agreed with um, in certain bands like with Behemoth and what they try and say with making a statement, I agree with fully and I love the imagery they use to kind of propagate their message forward. Definitely. Did you play music? I did play music. Um, Yeah, there were always drum sets growing up in our house, Um, but
0: how many drum sets?
1: uh, There were there have been upwards of four or five at any given time. It was you know probably hell for my mom, but we all made it through on the other side. Um, I remember getting an acoustic guitar as a graduation gift uh, eighth grade year, and I loved it. I played so much um of that and i was learning bluesy bluegrass kind of stuff but i always wanted to play acdc that's what i wanted to play and i really wanted an electric guitar and i got one a little while after that when i was a freshman or sophomore in high school and immediately i just started playing all these electric guitar songs that i always wanted to play and i was like you know what i want a band i'm gonna start a band and then me and some friends we started a band and we played all over the place with all sorts of different kinds of bands and we really had a lot of fun in the five years we were together and went really far for what we did and um, I'm still to this day active in music. Uh, That project is dead but you never really kind of give up your creative pursuits Uh, and so to this day I'm still playing. I have like a little bit of a grunge rock metal sludgy thing. I don't really know what to call it. Um, But yeah, definitely still involved in music.
0: And you're also working in a bakery too, is that right? I do work in a bakery.
1: Uh, That is an interesting thing. Um, I work for this vegan bakery in Chicago called Pie Pie My Darling. We are just unbelievably... Man, how do I even put this? We are so busy at this bakery because the demand for vegan treats is just out out the door insane. I don't really know how to um, actually conceptualize for people how insane our demand is. We can't keep up. We are constantly there six days a week baking and selling. And we actually only sell one day of the week. And the other five, we're baking to get ready to sell to close to five, 600 people on a Saturday in three hours, and then we sell out. So between that music and other little endeavors that I put myself into, it's very, very busy and hectic lifestyle, for sure.
0: It's one that uh, I think we're acclimated to if we work in hospitality, though, right? Yeah, no,
1: you definitely when you work in hospitality, you know, you're not doing one thing. It's very rare you come across someone who's just all in on hospitality. You've grown into people and you come across people who spread themselves over multiple avenues, just maybe for their own interest, but also it's an industry that allows you that kind of flexibility to do so as well. And uh, it's been really helpful for me in pursuing these other things and many other people have worked with as well.
0: Let's take a let's take a breather and uh, put some beer into our faces and uh, talk about this beer that we're drinking. Yeah. So uh, we brought a couple beers to drink today. Uh, the first one that we're enjoying right now was released relatively recently. It's a collaboration that uh, Pipeworks uh, Brewing Company here in Chicago brewed with uh, with Collective Arts, a brewery in uh, based in uh, Canada. Uh, but it was brewed with a uh, a mutual friend of ours, uh, Coy, who is going to be opening their uh, New York uh, their New York space. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. I can say that.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, there's always a point to add it out. <laughs> <laughs> in,
0: in any event, uh, I let's talk about this beer for a minute. So what uh, what do you what do we make of it? Uh, it reads uh, obviously as a collaboration it reads as a hazy pale ale with mosaic amarillo cryo citra uh i should boost my ego a little bit and say that it was also a collaboration with scorched tundra uh the underwriting host of this of of this endeavor yeah you got your
1: big logo right below pipeworks it's fine it doesn't We don't need to mention it. Yeah. No, it's a very good beer. This is a style that's really popular right now, for sure. And to kind of stand out in this specific style is a little difficult just because of how much is going on. But uh, I find with this style, there's always this very chalky uh, flavor profile that's really prominent. And it's always been a little off-putting for me with this style but with this specific beer it's really tamed and it's nice and mellow it drinks like juice you got a lot of that orange and citrus profile coming out and the malt
0: is dry
1: as well which is really really nice
0: Mm -hmm. i agree definitely i think the goal of of this beer was to make something that could accommodate for people that like those citrus forward ipas that like those juicy things but that also are looking for something that's dry and therefore drinkable Mm. i think with uh, a lot of the beers that uh, i tend to be involved in and that uh and that koi makes for the most part i would say yeah tend to be tend to have like a dry profile in them i would argue that i mean there's a lot of things that you can talk about when you're talking about signature flavor pro signature profiles in beers or things that you want to impart as a message or a statement in your beer and uh for me uh dryness is important because dryness is drinkability and balance is also important and i think that uh achieving those things lends itself to a drinkable beer and uh i think that everyone that makes beer wants beer to be drinkable in uh some way unless you only make a uh, 12% Imperial stouts.
1: Oh, absolutely. And you know, on the, on that note, you know, when I brought up earlier Miller light and Bud light and these kind of beers that America is very used to while very drinkable, there's not a lot of flavor going on. And so you're kind of just drinking this alcoholic beverage for, in my opinion, there's not much you're gaining out of it, you know, uh, from a flavor perspective, but If you look at something from Europe that's more like a table beer and it's 3% alcohol, yet somehow that has more flavor profile because they're not trying to just suck something dry from all of its complexities just to push out a light-flavored alcoholic beverage.
0: I think you're talking about something. Yeah, I mean, the real heart of it is that you're talking about something that's made for nourishment. Mm Mm-hmm instead of made specifically for emptiness right right
1: and that's kind of the difference you get between the two i would i would call them two different worlds of beer really Mm -hmm. definitely and there's something you have to appreciate about the other world that is is making more ground in america for sure
0: absolutely so i uh yeah oh coasters thank you
1: Cocktail napkin.
0: So this was. Uh, I, I I would like to tell a very short. Why is it called backyotomy? So <laughs> uh, again, Coy uh, is an old friend of mine uh, from when he lived in uh, when he lived in Denmark, and we brewed some beers together. And he was coming to Chicago en route to the. I think it was like the Southern Grist Festival in Tennessee, or it was around that time two months ago seems really long ago and uh basically he came he came into town on a monday and on sunday i woke up and my back was absolutely gone
1: yeah i remember you were you were definitely bedridden
0: and yeah. so uh yeah so uh, henceforth uh for movie buffs out there they'll they'll re- <laughs> they'll understand the uh the reference straight away to uh a doctor ordered bacchiotomy because I was just hobbling around the the brewery uh in in very difficult shape. And after uh a great deal of back and forth and discussion, I'm glad that we arrived at that uh at that conclusion that we could call the beer as such. <laughs> Throw some skeletons on there, boom, great beer.
1: Right. Well, it's never easy naming a beer, right?
0: <laughs> no, I, I think that's kind of the funny thing about uh collaborations and about uh uh, like really, when you get friends together, uh, naming something's kind of the last thing that we think about. Mm-hmm. Um, oftentimes, the source of a beer. This isn't always the case because I know a lot of people that make beers based on the name as a starting point. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it depends on how creative you are and what strikes you in some ways. But mm-hmm. uh, I've, ne- I mean, names are always kind of the one of the last things that I think about uh when it it comes to beers
1: no definitely i mean we as i said earlier we worked together at kuma's and there were a lot of beers we would do in collaboration with many many breweries and it was always funny the name was one of the last things to piece together almost uh at some points the artwork was more determined than the name which is kind of funny to think about at some points you know
0: yeah, I, I think I think it's naming things is a. If you have a name to start with, it, it's obviously so much easier. But a lot of effort sometimes goes into everything else about the beer, mm-hmm. right? the The artwork, as you mentioned, like working with uh, someone like Bryn Gleason, uh, who's done the art for a number of different, uh, you know, collaborations that whether they've been Scorch Tundra things or Kuma's Corner related your collaborations and all that like someone like that will just put something together kind of on her own Mm -hmm. based on what she's heard of the conversations and her knowing of the people and so sometimes it's easier to have all this evidence together and then say okay now this is what we're going to call it right (laughs) and I, i you know it's also one of these things where i don't think i'm the only one that has difficulty coming up with names we'll stand around and like regresses humans trying to figure uh. out how to name these things, what to name it. Uh-huh. Uh, it's the most taxing thing. And the the descriptions too uh, can sometimes be really challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it's, it's hard to find a line of like, should we get technical and talk about what the ingredients are in the beer? Should it be something that is about um, some type of story that has nothing to do with the beer? Should it be uh, like, yeah. What is it, and then what is the like the brand sensibility of the brewery? What is the brand sensibility of the collaborative partner? Because right. uh, the thing that I kind of have difficulty with is like Kumas has one specific voice, and Scorch Tundra has a little bit of a different voice when it comes, just based on their histories within mm. beverage and certainly within food, and even with music. Even though they're both, uh, you know, relatively firmly planted in metal totally. in some way. But there's different there's different nuanced voices within that too.
1: No, absolutely. Um, you know, you come across with many, many different. Um, it, it's like metal. There's so many uh, different subgenres within metal, and it all comes together in one big, under one big roof, essentially. And it's the same thing with Kuma's Scorched Tundra, multiple breweries. They're both breweries, right? But at the same time. They're both doing different things, so you have to kind of find that middle ground, and doing that can be a challenge at some points, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I do want to touch on how you found yourself at Kuma's and how we kind of first got together, essentially, and kind of dive into
0: a little bit of you, if you'd like. Was that in 2018?
1: feels like forever ago, doesn't it? it would have been. I think it
0: was. Anywho. Uh, I joined Kuma's in the autumn of of that year uh, to be the uh, assistant general manager of the West Loop store, which had recently opened at that point. I think uh, earlier in the year in May or something like yeah. that. Yeah, we had been open for about three months or so. Yeah. Uh, so I was I I came in there um, obviously with larger ambitions to do things for the company with beer as well, but when you start somewhere new you want to dance and you want to get to know everyone and get to know everything. So, uh, it was there that, that you and I met and also again, uh, Bryn Gleason too. And, mm-hmm. and, um, I would say we kind of formed a, uh, a formidable partnership in a lot of ways. I would definitely
1: uh, call it a trio for sure. <laughs> at that store.
0: <laughs> um, you know, I came into, uh, help really kind of give some focus to beverage at that store. I mean, that store definitely is being in the West Loop neighborhood of Chicago. It's a big drinking area, big cocktails, lots of beer, a lot alcohol, of food too. a lot of food too. Mm-hmm. you know, a lot of everything, you know, people that are interested in consuming, we could say
1: of all varieties, everything. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh,
0: that was a perfect place for me to kind of land. Um, and we, yeah, we we brewed a lot of great beers together. I ended up there, obviously, like I've known about Kumas for a long time, being born and raised in Chicago. And mm-hmm. so uh, when it kind of came time to uh, search for something new in the food and beverage world and wanting to uh, try out a spot where uh, beer is important, but isn't the number one thing at the store and to find a way to make beer really important to people and to get people to stay for beer and to learn about new beers and to, um, you know, work with staff training and all this fun stuff. That was uh, the the perfect uh, spot for me to end up in a lot of ways.
1: And I think, you know, Chicago in general is a pretty heavy beer city, but in the West Loop specifically, I feel there's more of a focus on wine and cocktails because they're seen as more of a higher end, uh, I guess, good to consume. And it was cool having you introduce beer, really high quality beer to a scene that didn't really get a lot of that at the
0: time. And now it's really, really exploded, you know? Absolutely. I think uh, I mean, I'm going to force beer into everything that I'm involved in in some (laughs) way. Uh, But that's the thing about the West Loop is that you have a lot of places that are very like chef driven. You have a lot of places that are. Um, you have big personalities in food, whether it's restaurant groups or whether it's um, places that are of a, a specific caliber or a certain um, consensus in the food community. And the reality is that wine and cocktails are what is still kind of the highbrow beverage in those communities. Beer, the um, beer, I wouldn't say is second fiddle. But it's definitely if you go to restaurants in this area, it's cocktails and wine for sure. And Mm -hmm. so elevating beer and putting it on the, um, putting it kind of where it deserves to be as uh, on equal footing at the very least with those other things is definitely an important thing because for all the reasons you pointed out, um, beer can be a very important uh, beverage for especially like when you talk about pairing and you talk about uh, general experience. Mm -hmm. Uh, Beer is a leveler in a lot of ways because it can relate to people. So many different kinds of people can relate to it because they have had an experience with beer um, in ways that maybe they haven't with cocktails. And we do get a lot of people that are uh, tourists and that are from out of town going to that West Loop area. So uh, beer is kind of the leveler for all these people in some way, too.
1: Mm hmm. I think beer is an excellent kind of common ground for everyone to meet at because it's something, as you said, we are all familiar with, for sure. On some level, maybe craft beer is an unfamiliar territory for some people, but everyone at some point in their life has had a beer. Exactly. And you can find common ground there. And, you know, when you want to go into the more intricate details of anything from food to alcohol, you find common ground with what people eat and drink daily this is one of my favorite conversations we would always have at kumas is how you connect with someone who is particular about what they like to drink well ask them what they had for breakfast and then go from there
0: yeah i think that you know a lot of those teaching sensibilities and those kinds of ways that you relate to people um were very informed by a lot of my experiences in the past, whether it was with how uh, music was introduced to me, how um, beer was introduced to me When uh, for the years that I worked at Local Option. I mean, if you go into into that place, there's a chalkboard with names on there. There's no prices. There's no descriptions on there. You have to have a conversation with everyone about what it is that they like um what is you you find that you have to like really get to know someone in order to uh make recommendations for them if they're if everything that uh, is on the chalkboard is uh nonsense to them uh-huh. you know you have to talk with them you've to learn you've to learn about them and you have to figure out what's going to be the right thing for them um in particular when i started at local option in was that 2011 uh, craft beer was really different back then yeah. um the um like i would say the local uh, craft beer scene as we know it today that's um dominated by people like pipeworks or spiteful or um all of these like smaller class of 2011 2012 mm-hmm. breweries or even further uh, that was uh, that was like nascent at that point. The, the, they didn't really exist. And so what we had was all of these amazing craft beers from Europe. We had uh regional craft breweries from all over the US and some local stuff. And so you could walk into local option and half the chalkboard would be in French. <laughs> like uh, there would be all of these breweries from Belgium or uh-huh. there would be breweries from Uh, Germany or uh, Northern Europe, we serve tons of McKellar, tons of Danish beer, tons of Swedish beer, uh, Italian beer. I mean, that was what was interesting in the beer world at that time was local wasn't a consideration unless you were from California or Oregon or like another locale that had a really strong craft beer scene that had carried through all of the '90s and the bust of brewpub culture. I mean, we had uh, we had a couple in Chicago like uh, Goose Island that had stuck right. through, um, but uh, you know, it was really kind of about these beers that came or these breweries that came from all of these different perspectives. And for me, that was uh, super a super attractive thing uh, having studied history at DePaul and actually drinking at local option, trying all yeah. these beers, hearing all these stories from the people that work there about these breweries, meeting the brewers when they would come to the U S and they would do like these beer dinners at local option and, you know, uh, doing like the single hop tap takeover uh, that McKellar did, which I think was one of the first in the U S and that beer was like way ahead of its time. Uh-huh. And so, Uh, having that be like an educational backdrop uh, dovetailed really well with my education because I was so interested in different cultures and what are their expressions. And, you know, beverage is a great cultural expression. You learn so much about not just what's important from a flavor standpoint, but the sensibilities tell you so much about what that culture, what is important to people from that culture or even from that generation of that culture. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. And what, uh, if you're talking about lambic blenders, you're talking about families too.
1: Yeah. Long standing families in the beer world. It's amazing. It's a whole it, beer, beverage in general, food as well. They're great introductions into a culture and a society. And I firmly stand by that. And, you know, I think it's something we can all kind of meet at and then dive more into a culture from there you know it's a great entry
0: and i think that one of the beautiful things about uh, just kind of returning to uh, our entry point into this is that when you walk into a place where there's no printed menus and there's just a chalkboard with names on there there's a couple of ways you can interpret that as someone that's walking into it Mm -hmm. you can interpret that as you can feel small from it because you don't understand what it is and maybe you see like skulls on the wall and there's heavy metal music (laughs) and there's some fucking sweaty bearded dude running at you and you're like, I don't know what to do with all this stuff. But you can also approach it from the perspective of, oh, all of these beers are equal in some way. Right. They are, they don't have terms associated to them that I recognize. So... I don't project my own baggage onto them, right? So it requires then the art of conversation as uh, someone that works there. If you're a a bartender and you say, "Oh, this is what this is," Um, what do you like? Again, kind of so that approach to uh, talking about beer and using uh, using all of the tools that I had from uh, history education to understand those beers was uh, super awesome. On top of that, um, it was the same with music, too. I mean, uh, I got to know heavy metal music at a, you know, by stealing. Like, uh, I think a lot of people have a similar story. Like, I stole Metallica tapes from my brother and uh-huh. listened to Anjustice for All. Um,
1: Still missing the bass, but it's fine. Yeah. i are missing... never going to get it.
0: <laughs> I, I think that's a, a somewhat common narrative is that, You have like a a sibling, the evil sibling that gets you into things and you get into all kinds of trouble as a result of them. Mm -hmm. And so that's part of it. There was a a really, uh, there were a couple of other things that were kind of important for me too. And one of them is unfortunately a place that doesn't exist anymore. And that's Metalhaven. Yeah. Which uh, for those of you that listen to heavy metal music and uh, partook in going to shows and buying CDs and vinyl and stuff like that. Amazing record store that, uh, was at the corner of Broadway and Belmont from who knows when in the nineties until, uh, when was that? That must've been 2006, I think, or 2007 that they moved up to Ravenswood had a couple more years there. And then the owner, Mark opened a, uh, a restaurant and, uh, unfortunately couldn't continue, but, that place was great because I would go in there and it was much like going to local option in some way. You go in because you know that that place has the thing that you want. Mm -hmm. You know that there's a bunch of logos that are indiscernible and there's heavy metal music. And you're (laughs) like, okay, I know that I'm going to leave with something that I really like, but I don't know a lot of these bands, especially a place that like promotes underground music or, you know the same with uh, like these smaller, obscure European breweries. It's the same thing, basically. You know, absolutely. And you need kind of a guide to get you to
1: the point where you want to be.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I remember going in, and I don't remember if I spoke with uh, Mark or with uh, Blake, who uh, Blake from Nochmistium. He was working there for a while, and I, I spoke with one of them and said, "Hey, this is this is what I like." I like the song Blackened by Metallica, but I want every song on the <laughs> album to sound like that. I don't want just one song to be that wow. and then there to be a ballad here. <laughs> and so I, I walk out, you know, $150 later with a bunch of Swedish death metal. I have Unleashed, <laughs> I have Entombed, I have uh, some Olden Flames, I have The Haunted, I have At The Gates, I have tons of uh, pretty incredible stuff. And I really kind of got hooked uh at that point on Swedish death metal and specifically quite a bit of stuff from the West Coast because there was an incorporation of uh of melody neoclassical music folk music there was just so much interesting stuff going on there mm-hmm. um and then concurrently, I started a, a a zine with some friends that I met uh on a on a metal forum uh, in the pursuit of hearing more music and uh, being able to, yeah, get music for free and go to shows, basically, right? Mm-hmm. So, because that's what you want to do when you're in high school.
1: Well, yeah, it was the same thing with me. I started a band because I was like, man, I just want to see more music, and you know, part of being involved in the music scene is getting to do it all for free. It's pretty great. Exactly. <laughs> yeah.
0: So we started a zine. we got uh, tons of uh, tons of albums from you know, record labels a variety of size. Um, and then we started getting tons of music from like Swedish metal bands because as we kind of learned, Sweden was a country that was pretty early onto broadband and high-speed internet. And so once the once a lot of Swedish guys found that we were reviewing and giving, you know, some favorable reviews to bands from Sweden, we just got bombarded with material, Mm -hmm. uh, which was super awesome. We found uh, tons of great bands and actually decided to start a label to release uh, albums from bands that we thought were interesting and tried to shop to labels. And so that was like a, a fun intro for me to go to Scandinavia and to meet bands and start booking tours, start doing all kinds of things to support bands and Craft beer kind of collided with all of that in uh, in 2011 and started, I think, uh, you know, wasn't long after that, that the first McKellar Bar opened in Copenhagen. I spent tons of time there and all of it lined up with the music festival Scorched Tundra, which is a big part of this. Um, right. And so all these things kind of snowball in a lot of ways. And so it's it's really fun to... Just kind of keep an open mind about things and, um, you know, allow your interests to sort of evolve in some ways and give them space to grow. Absolutely. Do you, was that label the
1: spawning point of Scorched Thunder for you then? Was this kind of the catalyst, I guess? And why did you move from kind of doing
0: record label operations to what you're doing now? So at a certain point, I really was uh, committed to trying to make something work in the music industry, uh, specifically with identifying talent and making something happen with it. Mm -hmm. So whether that was with our label and signing bands and um, helping them grow to a point at which a larger label could identify them and pick them up, and we could do well with the uh, back catalog, which was what, kind of was our bread and butter as a label. We signed, I think there were three or four bands that, uh, that we worked with from the beginning, like uh, Sonic Syndicate, who ended up being quite big on Nuclear Blast for a long time. We did well with their first album. This band called Blinded Colony, whose singer, Johann Schuster, Shellback is I think probably one of the most well-known songwriters in the world.
1: I would say probably second most well-known songwriter for sure. Yeah, That album
0: did super well, particularly like, uh like we were also really early in the digital market too. We were on Spotify before it was even available in the U S. <laughs> um, And, you know, we really, because our origins were, we met through a forum, we met through the internet. So this was how we were going to embrace connecting with people. And so, um, you know whether, and then you know our third was with a band called Zanaria from Northern Sweden. They ended up jumping to Century Media after there, so it was like the first three albums were bands that we found identified, and then they went on to kick ass elsewhere. And so, you know, I wanted to continue with that in a more broad scope manner. So maybe finding a, ma- a band like uh, Marionette from Gothenburg and managing them and seeing what we can do in a different way with them, or having uh, booking tours for bands. Maybe there's like a way to kind of compile all these activities together and provide a number of different services. In any event, I found that um, it just wasn't really for me necessarily uh, insofar as, yes, I enjoyed it, but uh, in order to really work, uh, work with the underground and to make uh, a living requires an insane number of hours and and you need like a team of people to help you and uh it wasn't uh truly in the cards for me in a lot of ways but it was an excellent learning experience and a bridge ultimately to traveling in Sweden and um meeting bands and finding a city like Gothenburg that really embraced me in a lot of ways because uh Swedes love Americans, and when an American shows interest in what they do, they get pretty stoked.
1: Absolutely, and Gothenburg's a fantastic city to fall in love with. I know I definitely have.
0: Yeah, and so uh, the festival just kind of became an outgrowth of that in a lot of ways, was just trying out these different things, seeing what works, what doesn't work, Um, and ultimately it became about, well if I'm going somewhere, I would love to have all my friends that play music together. Like, let's just start there with something fun and do like a little showcase between on uh, what Swedes would call the Melandagen, which is the days between Christmas and New Year's nothing's going on then. Why not have a festival when people are sick of being at home and they want to go out and party? So again, it's one of these things that starts from that and then it became kind of about all right, well, what do I think is interesting at this point? Why don't I just throw to, throw together something that's going to be a fun party and that's going to show a lot of interesting bands and more particularly put them together in a way that uh, when you look at the, when you're there and you experience the lineup throughout the whole time, you see and hear different things from these bands than when you listen to them at home or when you see them on like a, a routed tour where they're with bands that are very similar you know i think that uh seeing these bands is much like uh putting different paintings together and rearranging them and seeing Mm -hmm. all the different colors that come out or the personalities of them that's uh what is fun about putting together a lineup for a show it's just like putting together a great draft list you know you want like all these uh different expressions to come out and that's I, I was never good with my hands. I was never good at like painting or drawing or anything like that. It's these kinds of things that uh, ultimately are like the big uh, expressions for me.
1: Yeah. Yeah, but every Scorched Tundra is very much a melody and a symphony of different bands coming together in one night that you wouldn't otherwise get and it working in a very harmonious kind of way. Because metal, as we have talked about already, is a very wide genre and there are many subgenres within it and so to create this kind of dance of starting an evening slow and then working your way faster and faster or vice versa you play that very very beautifully and it's amazing to see these bands that aren't very very well known by any means to the general public but every scorched tundra is a hit as far as it's usually a packed crowd, and everyone raves about the shows. And so it's very impressive to see it all kind of come together every year, year after year, in a very beautiful way,
0: for sure. It's a it's a fun event, and I'm really thankful uh, to have met uh, a guy named Mike Gebel, who was the talent buyer at The Empty Bottle for a number of years. It was really with, uh, with his encouragement that I was able to bring this event over, uh, over to uh, Chicago and to undertake an ambition of hosting it, if not once a year in either city and in both cities throughout the year and chicago's really uh, embraced this event in a lot of different ways it's been super fun to bring bands over that have played in sweden uh it's been fun to bring bands that have played the edition in chicago over there and uh-huh. have all these like fun uh, uh like just to have these relationships grow in both of these places is really really fun
1: yeah definitely i mean both music scenes are just unbelievable especially chicago's there's so many bands here and so many talented people just doing their thing because they love doing it. There's no higher prize in their eyes. I mean, a great band to think of is Oozing Wound. Their DIY ethic is continual. They do have a label that helps them push out their releases, but if you ever go to an Oozing Wound show, you very much know it's a DIY effort. There's no bells and whistles. You're there for music. And that's the beauty of it. They are unapologetically nerve-wracking. That's the best way I could explain their experience. And they have played Scorched Tundra. And I do remember my first Scorched Tundra was Oozing Wound and Bong Ripper on the same bill. And these are two bands that are very different from each other, yet I was so... I remember still figuring out the Chicago metal and punk scene, but I knew both those bands. And I was like, that can't be a show. That's a doom band that's very slow. And then you got Wound, who's just, like I said, nerve-wracking. You want to claw your eyes out listening to them. They're just always keeping you on edge. And I bought my ticket. I go to this show. I think it was Wound played first. And then, you know, you're ready to just jump out of your skin. And then Bong Ripper comes on. They're sludging the whole place down. And you're ready to fall asleep almost and it was just a beautiful harmony of music in one night so i really appreciate everything you're doing on the festival uh front and it's really cool and i'm looking forward to more obviously as well
0: yeah uh i'm definitely hopeful uh obviously the um the current climate is not really one that uh we can Make uh, promises about shows and things like that, but I can definitely assure people that uh, when you're uh, when you're thinking about your plans for 2020, set aside uh, Labor Day weekend, <laughs> or excuse me, 2021. There we go. You definitely want to set aside uh, <laughs> set aside Labor Day weekend because we're gonna have a good time. Um, on the note of when you were talking about uh, was that Tundra Six in Chicago? It would have been six. Uh, False was kind of sandwiched between those two uh, those two bands, and we're going to be talking about False in a little bit uh, mm-hmm. a little bit here. Um, speaking of kind of bringing things together in kind of a fun way, I want to talk about the second beer that we that we're drinking. Oh, um, yeah. So this is a. This beer, uh, I'm really stoked about. Uh, I bought it a couple of, I mean, really a number of years, or not a number of years ago. <laughs> what does a number of years ago mean when something well, was made in two, 2018?
1: Three, four.
0: <laughs> uh, in, in any event, um, you know, this beer is called uh, Sin Frontera. It's a collaboration. Uh, Trois Dames from Switzerland, uh, Crooked Stave from uh, Colorado, and uh, Jester King, who hosted this uh, brew day, um, if I recall correctly, the first uh, Sin Frontera was brewed in uh, Switzerland at Trodam. Unfortunately, I was unable to try that. Um, all of these breweries have a lot in common with an interest in uh, farmhouse uh, style beers. Um, the head, I believe he's the still the head brewer at uh, Todam, but at least at that time was uh, is Jordan Keeper who was actually the first head brewer at Chester King. So a lot of crossover there, um, and for the beer nerds that know out there, uh, Crooked uh, the one of the minds behind Crooked Stave is Chad Jacobson, who uh, is a well known and published researcher on the nature of wild yeast and how uh, what they kind of do with each other and in beer. So this is kind of a fun uh, project of a number of different breweries that have an understanding of and recognize and showcase what we were talking about earlier sense of place, right?
1: Exactly. And that's what I was going to say. These breweries and these specific style of beers wholly represent that sense of time and place, which is the whole reason I and We are drawn to beverage in general, because if you don't really have a sense of place where something comes from, then what, what does it actually represent?
0: That's No, exactly. I think that, um, when, when you get into, and, and that's something, you know, that could be discussed about contemporary styles of beer is that, um, in one way, there's a lot of very interesting emulation and there's a lot of, um, competition to, uh, go after an ideal that no one's actually created yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and that pursuit is what's interesting for the consumers, um, and i think for these people the object for people that are producing these styles of like farmhouse beers um the objective everyone has a similar objective in some way and that is to show what a sense of places and what it means to them um but their expressions then become different in some way Mm -hmm. so in, in a way you know they're pursuing the same thing much like what we could call contemporary producers are but the end result's very different absolutely So to put a little pretext, so we gave a little context about the collaboration. Um, This is the second iteration of the collaboration with Crooked Stave and Trois-Dame using a similar recipe to the first but deviates by maturing in cognac casks rather than sherry. So the Swiss edition was aged on sherry casks. Uh, Naturally for Jester King, uh, unfiltered, unpasteurized, and 100% bottle conditioned. There's Um, a lot of skulls on it, which is pretty sick. Yeah, it's pretty metal uh pouring like a really nice uh deep yellow, really, really beautiful uh kind of like apple um not, not in an off not in an off-flavor manner, but in a beautiful, no. like more of the nature of like a cognac uh character.
1: I feel like too with Jester King it is one of their staple characteristics, uh that apple kind of um I, I wouldn't say you really taste it, but it's definitely on the nose and you can really smell it. I've noticed that with a lot of their beers. And this one specifically, even for being two years old now, it still retains this very high quality, ripened berry characteristic that I'm really appreciating.
0: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. No, ripened berry. Um, I get quite a bit of like apricot and dried fruit as well, which could be in part of the age of the beer. And Mm -hmm. it could also be, uh, you know, wood character. Um, But it's very, it, it is very fruity generally. You know, berry or dry fruit or even like, I mean, I could interpret some pineapple from that as well or other like uh, brighter fruit. Uh, Very, very enjoyable, uh, enjoyable, satiating beer.
1: Absolutely. I would drink this on a patio on a hot summer day. Yeah. All of it. All 750 milliliters. Yeah, all of it.
0: (laughs) Um, and I think that, you know, for me, uh, these breweries in particular, the Crooked Staves, the Trois Dames, the Jester Kings um, are uh, and what they represent uh, is a survey of uh, they, they come from a place where there was a time in beer culture where uh, trying different styles and seeking different kind of cultural uh, impressions uh, was a was a highly valued thing. Today, uh, uh, technology and ticking culture has made things a little bit more about uh, accumulation of uh, different different beers that are somewhat similar, hazy IPAs or try the new this, try the new that. And right. I think that uh, which at which uh, makes sense culturally with where we are too, in a lot of other ways. Whereas with this, I think the accumulation was more about, Uh, trying beers from different cultures, seeing different expressions of uh, styles that you are intimately familiar with from an expectation standpoint. You know what a porter tastes like, but what is this uh, company from this place's interpretation of this style? So um, for me, this is a, a really fun beer because it has a lot of the sensibilities from Uh, the time where I was really uh, getting to know beer and enjoying it again through like a historic lens. Absolutely. Uh, And, you know, kind of on this
1: note of beers, beer trends and retaining some sort of historical value, I guess in a style, I think Jester King really does that well in honoring the Lambic tradition style of beer making and between them We are lucky to have two other breweries within an eight-hour driving distance uh, from Chicago, Hacienda, and also Scratch Brewing down in southern Illinois. Uh, They're retaining this farmhouse style uh, in a world that's moving way quicker than what a farmhouse style takes to traditionally make. And it's these style of beers that are... Um, I, I really appreciate because of that, you know, that's not really chasing the next, uh, hot thing, hot ticket item, so to speak, and just taking their time producing what they know is a quality product and what they appreciate as well as beer drinkers. It's really beautiful.
0: Yeah. I think that using the, the foraging aspect of what scratch does is absolutely fascinating. Um, and Uh, not just using them to not just not using the ingredients to use them, but having like a pretty strong sense of purpose of, of what you're using them for. So using, uh, you know, using all of these herbs and, uh, and mushrooms and anything that they are foraging for to emulate certain malt character, emulating yeast esters of us for to, uh, in conjunction with making something towards a specific style and, um, you know, really hitting a lot of, uh, hitting um, some objectives as far as what you're making in historic styles of beer, classic styles, um, and also creating, uh, in in using highly local or highly local ingredients, um, building their own kind of space for expression, which is, I think, where a brewery like Chester King is heading towards with its agricultural endeavors, with... Um, buying out all the land around it to, uh, essentially protect itself from, uh, from, uh, development. Yeah, no, it's beautiful. And I think,
1: you know, as a country, if you're doing this style of beer, there is room for them to do that. And to produce this specific style, you need to protect the environment surrounding you. Otherwise it'll totally compromise your end product. Right. Mm -hmm. So the whole kind of, um, Uh, The ranch that Jester King is building around itself and then using that land to kind of propagate up its whole network of beer sourcing is really, really cool. And I wish there were more breweries in the U.S. doing that style of brewing because it's definitely something I highly value in my beer and I know you do as well. Absolutely.
0: Let's shift here.
1: Oh, let's, we're shifting. Yeah, let's shift. Oh, okay. Yeah, We've had I'm a lot ready. of fun talking about
0: uh, <laughs> waxing poetry about beer um, and all the uh, new, numerous correlations to everything in the world. Um, but we, uh, when we were kind of looking at making this episode, we talked about, and this may tell you uh, about how long it's taken for us to actually <laughs> sit down and do this <laughs> <laughs> but uh here we are and uh we made a promise to ourselves that we were going to talk about our favorite albums from uh what was a recently passed last year when we first started but is now, is uh, now. ancient history <laughs> so let's talk about our favorite albums from last year uh we've you know 2019 was a pretty phenomenal year there were lots of really high profile metal albums that came out um yeah and uh i i really kind of enjoyed myself a lot there was I mean, I think there's still albums that came out last year that I haven't listened to, or that.
1: Oh, I'm still going back, and I'm like, wait, that that was 2019 too. It's it's just this never-ending stream of music that came out last year. It's really
0: amazing. And and I would I will say for people that uh, do want to join us again in the future, uh, we will be talking about our favorite albums <laughs> of of what has happened this year so far uh, at a certain point, relatively soon. Uh, But I'm going to kick this off because there were a couple albums that I really, really liked a lot and we'll just kind of go back and forth and uh, try to have some fun linking things together. So uh, let's talk about Dark Throne for a second. I know you mentioned earlier (laughs) that you love black metal. I love not all black metal, but I love a decent amount of black metal. (laughs) Um, When it gets very lo-fi... I do enjoy it to a certain extent, and I do think there is a a really, really strong, like, there can be a very strong like uh, artistic intent and a very interesting statement that can be made using the production. Um, uh, Nonetheless, I thought that uh, Old Star, that Dark Throne put out, I think it came out in the summer or maybe uh, like Q, the second or third quarter of the year. Uh, Really, really fantastic album very uh i would say raw but somewhat updated production for them
1: definitely upgraded uh for sure uh you i haven't heard a dark throne album that's actually sounded this good and i do agree with you there are uh, traditionally speaking black metal is low fi because there just wasn't a lot of money revolving in the genre and so you couldn't really get a high fidelity recording of black metal even if you wanted to as a band and it just kind of became a staple of the genre uh that being said newer iterations of black metal have definitely up production and um that's something i as a musician really do appreciate is when something actually does have a really good sounding production um but that being said too old star has a lot of really cool rock and roll elements to it as well that I just fell in love with. And there was a really good amount of riffage on the album that I haven't really seen. Uh, Well, I will say their last record had a lot of that going on too, but it's been refreshing to see black metal have um, kind of a new just blood flow into it.
0: Yeah, I think there's uh, definitely a strong tendency on the part of uh, I, I read a decent number of reviews of this album as well because I enjoyed it so much and I was kind of curious as to what others were saying and uh I think that a lot of people were referring to Motorhead and uh, a lot of like kind of hard rock uh speaking as, using it as a super kind of stock term uh for this album and I, I mean I don't really think that they're wrong in that assessment I do think that um there's, like, a heavy kind of, like, uh, black and roll element to this that, uh, that I really enjoy a lot that, uh, I mean, for listeners of bands like Chrome Division and stuff like that, you heard that uh, then, and I think that there's, um, you know, a lot of a good feeling of black metal that you get out of uh out of this album there's like uh <laughs> what I would call black metal jolly aspects as well too <laughs> that uh that you definitely get. It's just a, a a very, very fun to listen to uh black metal album and I think that uh I was definitely not expecting this album when it came out, but I'm really happy that uh that it did.
1: Mm-hmm. I definitely agree. It was not something that was... It was on my radar, but it wasn't something I was anticipating to be refreshing and new, for sure. Um, Kind of on that black metal note, uh, there's this dude who goes by Mismore out of Seattle. uh, And he's been doing this really interesting style of black metal that's also got a lot of spaced-out, doomy elements to it. And I know before this album came out, it wasn't even really an artist who was on my radar, but uh, he ended up topping a lot of charts for active uh, metalheads. And I was like, okay, I need to figure out what's going on here. And from the minute it starts, you're hit with kind of um, acoustic-y, reverbed-out, sounds and then it just immediately drops in and you're you're in for a really wild ride for sure that goes from booming spaced out doom to just heightened pulse speeding, blackened metal
0: it's really really beautiful absolutely and to stay on the uh black metal tip and i suppose on the gilead media tip i thought gilead <laughs> as a record label had a really really good year last year Um, a number of really spectacular, uh, spectacular albums, but, and we, we had talked about this band earlier a little bit, uh, false from Minnesota put out a really fantastic, uh, album called portend. Um, I mean, the album is more or less three songs, uh, three songs long. So if you're, uh, someone that likes, uh, very kind of, uh, I would say these albums have these songs have a ton of personality and they really, they ebb and they flow. There's post-metal elements to them. There's somewhat symphonic elements to them. There's, I mean, if you are a fan of black metal, there's something to love in this album. <laughs> um wh- Whatever, whatever other kind of um uh, proclivities you may have. Um, and it's uh, it's just a really really triumphant album in a lot of ways, and um, I, I've uh, enjoyed this band uh, live. Have you know? Fortunately, been able to book them before, and they're absolutely phenomenal to see live.
1: Absolutely. and
0: uh, I really hope that we can uh, we can see them again live in Chicago sometime soon. I put a big chunk of money on us being able
1: to do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's just keep rolling on this. Black metal-ish idea. Uh, A band I've really fallen in love with as of late is uh, Alsa from France. And traditionally, they're definitely post-metal with a lot of black metal elements. However, this new album that they just put out last year, Spiritual Instinct, it was distinctly different from anything they have ever done. This band traditionally has just zoned out and surrounded you in a kind of ethereal uh trance and i'm not saying they don't do that on this album because they definitely do but where the just bludgeoning black metal used to be they've kind of replaced it with groove centric rhythms and melodies that just hook you right when you hear them and for a band that traditionally kind of almost avoided that it's really refreshing to me, and I've just been playing this album on repeat and fall in love with it every time I hear it.
0: Mm-hmm. It's definitely uh, that band sort of has uh, taken an evolutionary role in some ways. Like every album has been a little bit different, but I think there was a pretty massive gap uh, okay. in a lot of ways from this to last. What else is like unique about this album to you?
1: Well, they started playing with. Um I guess, this lyrical kind of composition where the singer, uh, Nige, he developed almost this language that um, he uses on the record. So whether you're an English speaker, French speaker, or both, you actually will not understand what he is saying on some of these songs because he just felt like to creatively express himself, there were no words in either language to actually do it. So he... um, He made up his own kind of language. That being said, there's still moments where he uses the English language or the French language. And it's basically the story of him overcoming demons in his past and trying to make amends. And it's a really beautifully written album, both musically and
0: lyrically, that really just comes together really, really well. Mm -hmm. I'm going to switch gears altogether. And, uh, strongly recommend folks to check out, uh, also the new, the latest Candlemas album, The Door to Doom. Um, it was, uh, nothing like the Elsa album that, uh, Sam just spoke about, but it is, uh, a really, really awesome, I would argue even like a return to form, uh, first full length album since 2012. And, um, uh, which, you know, in and of itself means a pretty substantial gap for the band as far as releases. Uh, you know, entering the fold again is uh, Johann Langqvist, uh, who has not uh, been with the band since uh, probably one of their most influential albums, Epicus, Dumicus, Metallicus of 1986, my birth year. Um, so that's a long time to not be in a that, band. That
1: is a very... <laughs> We're talking almost uh, 34 years. Yeah, fantastic production
0: (laughs) on this album. Uh, Really, really, really clear production. Uh, Guitar solo from Tony Iommi, which is sick. Um, Really well-written songs. Uh, Just, I I would say, if you're looking for a really fun, straightforward uh, Doom album uh, with a very, you know, a vocalist that shouldn't be new to you but maybe new to you in some ways if you are more of the Messiah era uh Candlemas fan this is a, a, absolutely a uh, a delight
1: yeah i agree uh i want to keep uh shifting the gears and moving this along there's this band from Seattle that you and i have come to know now they're uh they don't have any full-length release yet, but they put out an EP, and they're the only EP on any of our lists. They're called Mount Saturn. It was a self-titled EP. They are unapologetically stoner rock with metallic grooves that just they just surround you, encapsulate you, and you're immediately stuck in this groove that you just are not let loose from. The vocalist has this melodic, kind of drowned out, echoey vocal structure to everything she's doing. And it just, to me, it's a return to this 90s grunge scene that we haven't obviously, there's been kind of this resurgence, but we're just now finally seeing this true to form kind of fruition. And it's all kind of circling back and it gets me really excited I know they're in the studio right now and I'm really stoked to see kind of what they're going to be doing for this year or next year.
0: Let's keep with things that were uh, unexpected this year or last year and uh, talk about uh, a band not from the Pacific Northwest or from Europe uh, called King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. And they put out a uh, thrash, uh, informed, fuzzy... Uh, album called infest the rat's nest that totally came out of left field for me i think for most people
1: everywhere no one saw this coming
0: um i mean they are a band that uh that one could say had a tendency towards eclectic or changing things up a little bit between albums uh historically uh but this was uh you know a pretty big shift for them in a lot of ways and they hit a home run I mean, this is, if you're a fan of fuzz, if you're a fan of like thrash bands, if you're a fan of, um, you know, anything in the worlds between that, this is a really, really fantastic album to dig into. And uh, I really thought it was incredible that they came to Chicago and sold out the Aragon Ballroom.
1: It It was, it was an unbelievable, I mean, I was there. Were you there? I was was... not there. I'm very jealous (laughs) that you were there. It was just something that was so unexpected from them, and I fell in love with this album. I would encourage anyone who is not really familiar with them and does like these fuzzy thrash elements, there's a song called Self Immolate on the album. And if you enjoy that song, just go from start to finish. It's a hell of an album, and I could not recommend it more. Really, really solid work from King Gizzard and that wasn't even the only album that they put out that year too it was not they didn't they did two or was it three i don't even know this is a band that's constantly pushing stuff out and i'm just always kind of blown away because it is different every yeah time
0: uh they did have an album that came out uh earlier in the year uh fishing for fishies which uh was not a thrash metal album but was a very <laughs> enjoyable album nonetheless absolutely
1: well i'm gonna keep rolling here let's go back to europe Uh, Sweden specifically, we seem to have a kind of infatuation with it there. There's a band called Mass Worship and they put out a self-titled album that is absolutely devastating. You're talking pure death metal. No, um, No bells and whistles, just straight up death metal. The first song on this album immediately will have you hooked and it's something that you're going to be familiar with tones, you're going to be familiar with the vocals, but there's something about the way they structure the music on this album is something I haven't heard in death metal that's new and refreshing in a genre that's honestly probably pretty stale at this point because everyone's trying to do a very similar thing.
0: Was this album also a debut? It was a debut. Pretty uh, pretty good indication if a band puts out a debut on a label like Century Media that they're probably up to more than just putting that album out and calling it a day, too.
1: Absolutely. I'm very much looking forward to what
0: they got coming. Yeah. Uh, we're going to go back to the U.S. and we're going to go to uh, Virginia and talk about a band called Inter Arma that I've enjoyed quite a bit over the years. You know, uh, definitely uh, a band that puts out uh, you know s- express themselves in a lot of different ways over the years still within the general realm of post dark inspired uh, death metal mm-hmm. which can mean anything to anyone uh, but is a is a very good stock uh, stock box with uh, <laughs> <laughs> with cardboard walls that we can put it into <laughs> um I will say uh, sulfur English does play on a lot of things that this band has done in the past uh the vocalist uh shows a really really strong range on this album though that i had not heard previously i think maybe if you listen to like the cavern um which is i believe like a 45 minute song that they put out uh maybe not 45 but it's a, a rather long song that they yeah. put out a number of years ago as an ep that's exceptional you hear uh A similar kind of range to that uh, on this record with an even kind of darker uh, overtone, I would argue, as well. Um, And uh, the drummer, once again, continues to show why he's probably one of the best metal drummers as well as far as um, just pure sustain and pure ability to blast beat forever. The never-ending blast beat? The never-ending blast beat. It's like like black metal it is like black metal it never ends yeah (laughs) it
1: never ends on the note of uh i guess uh songs that just seem to go on and on and on and on and on but in a good way cult of luna one of my favorite bands put out an absolutely raw punishing lyrically driven masterpiece last year called a dawn to fear It's something you need to sit down. You turn everything else off. Whether you're listening to in your headphones, you put it on speakers, you just sit down and you listen and you go on a journey. And after, I think it's a good hour and 15 minutes or so of an album, you come out of it and you feel like you have almost gone to hell and back because of just how raw and punishing this album is. And I had a hard time saying what my top album was, and I'm kind of just listing them in whatever order, but I do feel like this was the album for me that just triumphed over every other album last year just because of musically how well it was written, but also lyrically. And again, when there's a story to be told in music and it's so well done, it just stands out above everything else. Even if the music behind it is bad, but there's a really good story to be told... It still kind of stands out, but when the music and the lyrics come together in such a way that this album did, it really, really just takes a hold of you, and you hold on to it in a way that you don't with other music.
0: Absolutely, and I think um, to kind of tie a bow on everything that we've talked about today, I really think that what it is that we're interested in is stories, and we're interested in uh, the cultures behind beer and behind music, And getting these stories out of people of why it is that they do what they do, what's important to them, uh, is really what um, you can expect to hear from us in the future. Uh, So we have a lot of really awesome guests lined up uh, for subsequent episodes. So I definitely encourage uh, folks to follow us. Go to scorchedundra.com. There's a podcast section. Uh, Keep up with us. Hopefully you can... um, And you will be able to find our our uh, podcast in other areas where you access podcasts. Um, I uh, yeah, that was (laughs) that was a quick cut out. (laughs) But we probably put everyone to sleep by now. So, uh, you know, uh, so continue to look, uh, follow those social media as well. Uh, Sam, how do you want people to find you?
1: Uh, Yeah, you can follow me on Instagram. It's Sam, and then you just spell out a little C-A-N-G-E, and then that is my Instagram handle. I post anything from music to food, things, beer-related stuff. You'll probably find Alexi and I tagged in some things together, and just everything we're talking about with y'all here, if you like what we're talking about, it's pretty much what I post about and try to keep people informed on what's important to me. And our society is bridging a gap kind of between Europe and America and what we find
0: interesting. Absolutely. So um, thanks for tuning in to us and we will catch you next time.